Badass Jews is brought to you by Badass Jew Hot Sauce. That's right. Badass Jew Hot Sauce. Make sure you click on the coupon code in our description. Badass Jew Hot Sauce. Think outside of the chuppah. Badass Jew Hot Sauce. So good, it'll leave you verklempt. That's right. Badass Jew Hot Sauce. It's a real thing. You think we're joking about it? We're not. Click on the link. Buy Badass Jew Hot Sauce. Made by Silk City Hot Sauce. Badass Jew Hot Sauce. I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew. And I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper. I worked in the sex trade. I became a stand-up comedian. And I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there. And let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins. They come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews, and I'm your host, Aaron Berg. My guest today, in many ways, is the epitome of this podcast. He began on a traditional path in life. He was a lawyer. Nothing wrong with that at all. But then he realized he'd missed his true calling. So he left the comforts of his high-paying corporate job to pursue his passion, coaching basketball. This is not a former player. This is not a man who had connections in the sport. This is a five foot eight Jewish guy who simply had a dollar and a dream. Today, we're gonna hear all about his road to glory. It is my honor to welcome Darren Ehrman to Badass Jews. Coach Ehrman, how are you today? Doing great, thank you for having me. This is a tremendous honor and I look forward to it. Is coach the appropriate title to call you by? I've been called worse, so I'll take it. <laughs> You're born and raised in Louisville, which right now, a hotbed of civil unrest, has always been, I would imagine. Uh, great athletes came out of Louisville. Muhammad Ali, phenomenal. Yeah. Um, when you were growing up, what was it like growing up Jewish in Louisville? Um, in Louisville, we were always big into basketball. When I was growing up, the uh, University of Louisville was the dominant basketball program, having gone to the Final Four, 72, 75. That was before I was born, but I was born in 76, so 80, 82, 83, winning a national title in 86 and 80. So it was, it was kind of a prerequisite in Louisville to like basketball. And uh, all the Jews in Louisville seemed to uh, cheer for the University of Louisville besides the outcasts here and there who like Kentucky. But um, it was just big as a prerequisite to like the University of Louisville as a Louisville Jew. And fortunately, uh, when I was growing up, it was uh, big time basketball. So when you're growing up, you grow up reform or conservative? Uh, reform. Okay. Which is a very good brand of Jew. That's the brand of Jew that I go by as well. Yeah. Kind of low end reform. Don't have to worry about, you know, shutting, uh, shutting lights off with the Shabbos Goy or anything like that. And little bits of bacon here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Cheeseburgers okay. I mean, hundred percent kosher. I fast when I'm supposed to fast. And other than that, you know, I go about my life like any other American. Do your fasts get faster as you get older? Because I test my brother and he goes on Yom Kippur. He's like, we fasted till six thirty, where it's supposed to be like another hour and a half. Oh, I, I'm just like your brother. I went to like six thirty. 
And I justified it because I have a one-year-old son and that's when he was eating. So, you know, it was around his bedtime. Yeah. So I was like, oh, he's eating. I want to eat with him. So it fit perfectly for me. Would you have chicken nuggets or is he still at a milk age? Uh, He likes uh, like kind of like Chipotle. Yeah. Really? At one year old? I think that that would qualify as child abuse in some states. Chipotle. Hopefully hopefully not Louisiana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Bar mitzvah? Yes, sir. What was that like? Uh, tedious learning your yeah, portion, yeah. your haftorah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what's your rabbi like growing up in a town like Louisville? My rabbi was cool. He was actually the uh, state champion wrestler at uh, from Michigan when he was in high school. Yeah. And he, I think he got recruited to play football at Northwestern. So at, at my bar mitzvah or when I was training with him, I challenged him to a wrestling match, which did not go well for me. I was 12. At the bar mitzvah? Uh, before, like while we were training. Um, you know, uh, but he was a pretty cool guy. He's still there. Uh, I actually watched uh, one of his Yom Kippur services the other day on a YouTube live stream. And uh, same as Rabbi Rapport. He was a cool dude. He's a cool dude. It seems like they're breeding much more athletic Jews in Louisville than they are anywhere else. Was there a big Jewish community around you? Yeah, there and Louisville is pretty big. It's tight knit. Like our our mayor, or growing up, the mayor of Louisville, uh, he was Jewish. He got like ninety percent of the vote. He was mayor for twelve years, and then he was a mayor for another twelve years. Like there was a merger, so he was able to run again, and he got so for twenty four years he was mayor of Louisville. Wow! And he always got like high eighties percent of the votes in Louisville. So there is this thing about. I don't know if I would describe it as blue collar, but like a a middle-class Jew that has this work ethic that runs side by side with the American dream. And and there's this notion to, to do better than your parents. Did you feel that? Uh, I just, you know what? I, I just think I like to win like everything. I want to get the best grades. I wanted to work hard so I could like get things like I needed to get my own car. I needed, I knew my parents wouldn't be able to afford to get me a car. I needed a computer. So I knew I needed, had to work to get a computer. Even when I was 12, like I cut 12 yards a week, made $3,000 and bought a computer. Yeah. So you've got this drive, this determination, you know, you got to make it on your own. Uh, you're in Louisville when basketball's blowing up in the eighties, two final four teams. How do you discover basketball? Uh, I mean, Louisville is always on. I always was obsessed with it. Even if it was like my bedtime and I had to, uh, couldn't watch it. I would listen to it on my radios. I went to sleep. Um, I was, I mean, a huge fan. I used to save every article of every time, uh, you know, the, the following, the day after uh, a game, I would keep the newspaper article. I used to have like trunks of articles and stuff. And um, I could, I mean, I just loved basketball. So you're in love with this sport that you see is dominated by people who are physically unlike you. Uh, everybody else in this sport, for the most part, is, what, at least six feet? Yeah. And you currently measure in at 5'8"? Yeah, I mean, I'm growing, I'm drinking milk, I got a shot. You're probably not. You're probably limited right. as to what your height is right now. And I'm 5'6", and I'm lying. So I'm probably I'm probably realistically five five, but I like to make up for it by uh, wearing shoes that elongate me. What's it like seeing this great sport, looking at it, and going, okay, physically I'm not cut out for this, but I think I can do it. Where's that thought come in? 
uh, in terms of playing, like, um, I mean, I, the JCC, I was, I was pretty good for the JCC, but it wasn't like I played one year of high school basketball. Uh, I wasn't very good there at all, but um, I just like, what's that like? Are you, are you relegated to the bench for the most part? Are you basically like training squad? How do you deal with that mentally? Uh, Bench. I mean, I, I, I was a token starter for two games. Um, but you know, it's just freshman basketball. We weren't very good. My high school only won one game that year. Uh, the varsity, uh, the freshman team won like three games that year. So we weren't very good, but it was, uh, you know, it was good. I I like, I enjoyed playing. Um, I, I, I used to even play up until a few years ago. Tell me how you go from high school and then end up at Emory university and then what that experience is like. Yeah, no. So Emory, I mean, I just kind of applied there as a joke. One of my best friends was going there. Like I wanted to be a coach at the, at the time. So I looked at Indiana, IU, Indiana University, Miami of Ohio. They both had like um, sports management and minors in coaching. You can get a degree in sports management. You can help with the basketball team. I, I met with like uh, Sean Miller, actually, who's a head coach in college now. When he was at Miami of Ohio, he was assistant. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to go to those places, but as terms of they they were relatively expensive. Like Emory gave me a, a scholarship, so it was like twenty five thousand. I got twenty thousand to go there. Something five thousand dollars on loans. When you're working at Arby's, that's a hell of a lot better than going to Indiana getting three thousand dollars scholarship. And you have to take fifteen thousand dollars on loans. So yeah. I, I went kind of applied to Emory as a joke. Got in. They gave me some uh, money. I visited, seemed fine. So I just went there. It was good. It was, I mean, for me, college was like, I graduated in three years. I mean, I worked pretty hard there. I, I worked a few jobs um, and I uh, studied a lot. When I, when I was at Emory, I, I coached, uh, you'll like this story. Um, my freshman year, I want to be coached inner city boys and club, girls club team, me and my buddies. And then I'm like, okay, let's go coach like middle school or high school. So I went, this is back when they had phone books. You talk about big computers. This is back when they had phone books, like 1995. So I go in the phone book, look up every school, call, no, don't need you, don't need you, don't need you. I get to the Ys. I get to Yeshiva High. Yeah. So I went all the way from A to Y, call Yeshiva High. They go like, good, we have an eighth grade team. We're about to start up this year. You can be the head coach. So they had 12 eighth graders in the school. By the way, great rap lyric there. I went all the way from A to Y, ended up at Yeshiva High. That's a great <laughs> rap lyric. I don't know if you want to sell it to somebody. It's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, another way to make money. No. <laughs> so there were 12 boys in the school, 10 were on the team, and only six ever played basketball before. But so even then I coached that team and I coached the next year, I coached a US-wide team. So I was always coaching in college. After graduating college, you went to law school at Northwestern, which would seem to be the end goal for a lot of Jewish kids. Go to law school. It was, I wrote my LSATs twice because they went very poorly. Uh, and then I decided to tell dick jokes for a living. But you go into, you know, law. Graduate with a law degree from Northwestern. What's next? Yeah, um, I went to work at a big firm, Latham & Watkins, really good firm. Great. Boom. So that's it. You're made, right? Is that what you're thinking at that moment in time? Well, no, because even my third year of law school, I used to go to Northwestern practices, basketball practices. And it wasn't an easy commute. It was like the law school's downtown Chicago, Northwestern Evanston's 40 minutes away, 45 minutes away. And I didn't have a car. I borrowed my buddy's car. 
or, uh, or take the L and, um, those practices sometimes were at 6 a.m. early part of the season. So I would really have to wake up early and go. And, and Coach Kevin O'Neill was the coach, and he was a you know, really, really good basketball mind. So I would do that some. I mean, not I couldn't go all the time, but I would go when I could. And uh, so even while about to graduate law school and already had my job and everything, I still had the itch to coach basketball. You become a lawyer, but there's always this other side of your brain that says there's something else I want to be doing. What was the daily grind at the law firm like? No, I mean, the law firm was great. I really enjoy Latham. It's, uh, Orange County was a great all. I started in California, Orange County, California. Then I, after a year, I went to Latham, Chicago. It was a good law firm. Love. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I was like, okay, let me uh, let me, I don't want to be 40 regret that I didn't try to become a coach. So I always wanted to do it. So I, and then there's a moment, sorry to jump in, but you have a coworker give you a warning. I don't know where this happens, but I know this story because we have a great research team. They don't want you to have your headstone say the Best greatest coach, coach ever that was. never was. Yeah. So Who told you that? Will Perjanti. He doesn't even remember telling me that. I brought this up to him uh, after uh, that came, after I remembered it. And he's like, oh. But he always used to push me to get out. He'd be like, get out. You know, you don't want to be here forever. This is, people used to come to my office and be like, this is not. And I was, you know, I was a fairly decent lawyer. I wasn't like the best ever. I wasn't the worst ever. I was decent, but people would be like, we could tell you don't want to be a lawyer. You should go go, go coach. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but I quit, paid off all my loans. And I was like, I called Coach Hurley once a week, every week for three months until he gave me a job. Now, he was a coach at St. Anthony's. Legendary. Why? Uh, he got a reputation for – I mean, he was legendary because he was a great coach, but he was winning at a very high level. Like, uh, I would say – I'll say he's the greatest high school coach of all time. That's a disservice to him because he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. I don't want to mm-hmm. qualify him as just a high school coach, but he demanded – like, he set a standard – it was his standard. Players had to live up to that standard. He wasn't going to let any slippage or any guys not live up to that standard. And he, um, I mean, body language is impeccable. He, uh, everything, no one batted an eyelash when he spoke. When he spoke, he commanded the room. His attention to detail is ridiculous. Like, he is a tremendous, tremendous coach. He was great, and I just showed up, and he was happy to have the help. And I would like, you know, I did a lot of stuff with the kids besides basketball. Uh, I drive them home. Um, I, I did a lot of, I was the guy who, when college coaches called, they would call me. It would kind of be a, an intermediary to help um, with the process and, um, you know, tutor, stuff like that, uh, SAT, get them signed up, um, variety of tasks like that. So it was more than basketball. What's it feel like to go from law, which the level that you were doing it at, although you may be helping people on some level, seems kind of self-serving and seems like it's this thing where it's like, it's a job, I'm making good money, to go to helping out kids in, in so many ways, you know? How's that feel for you? Does that open you up more as a person? Do you feel more complete, even though you're making no money and sleeping on an air mattress? Yeah, no, it's certainly more, uh, it's very rewarding. You feel like you're making a difference. Uh, one of the guys I coached this year, I mean, my coach at St. Anthony was, uh, this year was my assistant in the G League. Uh, so we have, I have relationships with a lot of guys I coach at St. Anthony, even though he's only there two years, I still talk. 
to a handful of kids and uh, some of the coaches. How do your parents deal with the news that you go, first of all, I'm working at this great law firm too. I'm doing the wrong thing with my life. I'm going to go coach high school basketball for free. <laughs> uh, they were cool with it. I mean, I was always, like I said, I was always kind of independently independent minded guy and independently driven. So uh, it wasn't like no one tried to talk me out of it. Um, I guess they figured if it uh, didn't work out, I could always go back. Did it feel to you like the biggest chance you'd taken in your life was to leave this law job behind and go do something for free? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was certainly like what worried me the most is I wouldn't know when to say when, like, okay, at some point, like eight years, I'm still making 20,000 and I'm not progressing and coaching uh, profession. Like, do I know, do I like, I'm not, I don't easily quit. So at some point you, you have to know when to say when, but I was lucky that I was, I was progressing pretty quickly. Um, but you know, as someone that accomplishes something, you, you don't quit. Right. And th there is no tap out. It's like, I left, I, I had a, a, not a cushy life, but like I was in Canada where I'm from, I was making a good living and I had a life set. And then I gave it all up. I moved to this cockroach infested eight by 10 room in New York. And I remember just looking in that room going, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> but you just know, you know, there's no turning back. Like it's, and, and you use all these analogies that you can feed into your brain, all this positivity and like, oh, a man must get lost at sea to get to the other side of the shore mm -hmm. and all this stuff that you fill your head with. Were you reading stuff about positivity? Were you reading stuff about great athletes that had accomplished so much in order to do this? Or was this just instilled in you? No, I mean, it's still me. I mean, I read a, uh, I read a book. I did have one quote, like, I don't know if you, a book you're familiar with called the power of one. And then in, mm -hmm. and one of the, there's a sequel as well. I think the guy said the dream is often lonely, but provided you're prepared to prevail, it's invincible. Yeah. So I was, I was like, okay, this is my dream. I mean, I'm prepared to prevail. You know, if I just keep going, I'll be fine. And I had that quote written down and I just kind of had it like next to where I slept. But I, I mean, I was, I, w I thought I'd make it to college. I wanted to be a college coach initially. Yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, I was confident I would have a good chance to make it, but uh, you never know until you're in it. Um, I don't think you think like you, like your story, you said, like you don't ever really think of failing. I just kind of, Went with it, it hits. There's moments where you're like, and I'm cursing a lot today. I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> there's, there's these moments where you're like, fuck, this sucks. This is so fucking hard, but what else can I do? And it it is hard. And it, you have moments where you would break down and be like, what have I done? I should go back. Does that ever cross your mind? No, I mean, like, so when I first quit, I actually – this really actually changed my life as much as anything. Um, there's a camp called Seeds of Peace. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It's a camp in Maine where they bring in Palestinians and Israelis and uh, they work on conflict resolution. So these kids come in from the Middle East. So I was quitting law anyways. And my BBYO director, I was like, if, I, if I, I'm a lawyer for another couple of months, I can make a extra like 15,000, $18,000, whatever it was. And, um, He's like, well, if you're going to quit, you might as well just go do, I wanted to do this, but I figured I might need the money. Like, you know, when you're about to make 25,000, 15, 18,000 is a lot of money. He's like, look, if you're going to quit anyways, you might as well go do this. Is this what you want to go do? 
So I went, became a counselor at this camp. And when I get there, I'm leaving a good, nice place in Lincoln Park, Chicago, good area, good place I live, I was living. And they give us our sleeping bags to live in the bunk. I unroll my sleeping bags and outrolls uh, a dead chipmunk <sighs> that was frozen there from the winter. And I was like, okay, this might not be exactly <laughs> what I signed up for. But I mean, or I had and then did someone yell, Alvin. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were actually called the Alvin Chipmunks. That was the name of our bunk after this. Was it really? Yeah. Uh, but it was, um, so there were moments like that or like when I, I lost my wallet in New York. And I literally like couldn't get back across the, uh, to New, uh, back to New York because it was like a, only had like $10 on me and it, the, the toll was more than that. And I was like, holy shit, I have literally no money left and no anything right now. And um, But I mean, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I had a pretty good support system. I have buddies that would help me out or whatever. So I, I knew I wouldn't be homeless or broke or whatever. Yeah. And I had a fallback on a pretty good law degree, but uh, I was driven to make it work. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, I, li- I lived on an arrow bed in my friend's apartment on the an floor. An arrow bed, you call it? Is that, that seems like a very fancy European name for an air mattress. I lived yeah, I think in- that's what it, maybe that was the brand back in the day. Oh, is it? An yeah. Ikea arrow bed. It, so- it actually, uh, yeah. There was one time, another story you like is, I was sleeping on it and the squirrel came in was like right next to my head and I was exhausted. And I was like, buddy, you don't bother me and I won't bother you. Wow. And I I'd, I'd freak out if a squirrel came up next to me. I tried to, tried to figure out how to get rid of a skunk on my property two weeks ago. So let me ask you this. You go to seeds of peace. Uh, you solve the middle Eastern conflict. Very little known fact about you. Thanks for doing that. Uh, I don't know how you did it, but then you go to the Boston Celtics dream come true for most people. Tell me what happens. Yeah, well, I, I went to, uh, from Seeds, I went to St. Anthony and I met Brian Scalabrini. And then he signed with the Celtics after two years in New Jersey. So then I'm like, I'll go to Boston. He told me to come to Boston with him. And I went, for two years, I was a volunteer assistant with Brandeis, nice Jewish school. And, uh, but I, I worked out Scalabrini, then I met Tony Allen. So I started working out Tony Allen, then I met Delante West, so I worked out Delante West and Ryan Gomes. And then the owner of the Celtics, when the owner sees me working out these players, especially Tony Allen one night, like 11 o'clock at night, and he likes what I'm doing. So he asked me to work out his kids. So I start working out the owners of the Celtics kids, five, four players, five players, six players. So now it's like almost half the team and uh, the owner's kids. And it just became a perfect storm where like the owner, Danny, they're like, okay, doc, doc used to see me a lot. And they're like, okay, we'll hire you. We'll put you on with the Celtics. So yeah, I was like, holy crap, this is unbelievable. Four years ago as a lawyer and now I'm a, a Celtics employee. And then 2008, you win an NBA title. So yeah. how crazy is that? Yeah, it's unbelievable. You know, my first year there, uh, we win the championship. I mean, coach Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce. I mean, you're talking about some of the best of the best. And uh, it was a fun team, a team that was all about winning and uh, all-time greats, all-time great winners. At this point in time, are you like, yeah, I made the right decision to leave the legal world? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had, yeah, I got literally lucky. I made like, you know, and then when I was at St. Anthony, this guy, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, I don't know if you guys know who he is. Now he's the NBA, uh, works for ESPN Woj, but he followed our team around uh, and wrote a book about us, which became a New York Times bestseller. So all of a sudden I was, a, you know, a character in a New York Times bestselling book. 
We won the championship. I'm on a Wheaties box. So a lot of good things are going on that were like, oh, uh, Forrest Gump-esque, you know? It was, uh, it was uh, very exciting. Did you buy a whole bunch of Wheaties boxes and leave them around the house? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, good pickup line. I brought him to the bar. Hey, look. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's probably the worst thing. Who wants cereal? <laughs> All right, ladies. I, I hear I some panties no, dropping. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had no idea about the box. I was working out in the weight room, and I saw it. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I'm looking in the back. I'm like, oh, crap, there's our team. That's amazing. Yeah. You can't do that if you're a lawyer doing mergers and acquisitions. You're not going to end up in any cereal box unless it's life. (laughs) Um, From Boston, you go to the Golden State Warriors, right? They're coaching Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. What's that like? How's that transition from Boston? No, that was great for me. I mean, like, uh, again, one of the connections there was Bob Myers was at Seeds of Peace. He's a GM there. But, like, so at Seeds of Peace, I should say this, uh, rewind a little bit, when I was there, a counselor, Arn Tellum was uh, the biggest sports agent at the time, and he's on the board of directors of Seeds, so he brings in NBA players. Scalabrini came, like, uh, TJ Ford, Mike Dunleavy Jr., uh, whatever. But I became friends with Scal, and that's how I – Scalabrini, that's how I became – started working him out while he was playing with the Nets and I was at St. Anthony. But Bob Myers was also an agent with Arn and he was there and he was the GM of the Warriors and also Scalabrini's agent. So I knew him decently well. And he kind of, you know, uh, introduced me to Mark Jackson and brought me over. So for me, it was good. It was a great, it's really good to reinvent yourself. I had like at Boston, I kind of like uh, was a certain, you know, kind of stereotype is a certain way like this is a guy who does this but in Golden State I got to reinvent myself um I got first player I ever really was assigned to work out and develop was Clay Thompson so he was I got Clay um he was a great shooter but we worked a lot on defense we did 45 minutes of defense a day for four days of the week in the summer and then we did offense but uh you know Steph same thing we did a lot of defense and then Harrison was one and Draymond are two guys I worked with a lot too and uh all of a sudden we went from the like kind of, you know, one playoffs in 18 years to one of the best teams in the NBA. You're a defensive mastermind, probably the best way to describe you. Why is defense your specialty? You know, when I coached college, I did offense. Uh, defense in uh, the NBA was just, I learned with, with Doc and Tibbs, Tom Thibodeau. And Tom Thibodeau was the Celtics assistant and he was uh, one of the best uh, defensive coaches. And we were, you know, number one, historically great defensive team, number one in five uh, categories. So I just learned a lot from Tibbs. And then um, I went to Golden State. We were really bad on defense. And, uh, you know, the head coach, Mark Jackson, gave me an opportunity to lead the defense. We were 26th the year before I took over. And then we were from 26th to 13th, I think, and 13th to 3rd. So I just happened, like, like, again, like I studied, like we had a lockout and I just studied defense from like 6.45 in the morning to 11 p.m. at night, seven days a week until I was like, okay, I think I can, t- I can coach this. Is there something about a defensive state of mind that trickles down into your life? Or did you just formulate this because you're like, all right, I'm just going to learn about it, read about it. Or do you feel like you live your life defensively? No, I think I just happened to be, be really good friends with Tom Thibodeau and uh, he was, and I was like, you know, I could just figure this out. We need to help defensively. I, I had learned 
I had been with him for three years and learned a lot from him. And then I learned from Lawrence Frank. He was replaced Tibbs and he is a high level defensive coach. And um, so when I went to Golden State, it was a national progression and we were bad defensively and we needed some guy to help with the defense. And uh, Mark Jackson trusts me with it. And uh, like I said, we, one thing I, I have like a, when I coach, I'm really passionate. So like, if you want your team to be good defensively and you you better make sure they go hard. And I was really good at getting those guys to go hard. It was one of my strengths. Uh, and we just became a really good defensive team. And we got better defensive players. Like Bob Myers did a great job bringing in Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut. Uh, Clay became a good defensive player. So we got better players and we had a good scheme and we were kind of ahead of the game of the way we played. Is it hard to get NBA players that are so attracted to – you know, the glam and the offense, is it hard to get them on board with a defensive style of play? I mean, maybe some, but I think like if guys want to win, they'll do it. Like we had a lot of guys that wanted to win. We had winners. Um, that was one thing, like I think the Warriors did a really good job of going out to get guys that had a physical presence and a defensive mindset. Like Trey Mom was really about winning. Bogut was about winning and playing defense. Uh, we got a guy Festus Azili, same way. Harrison Barnes became a good defensive player. So, I mean, we really – like when we got Harrison, I was like, Harrison, you were ranked the worst defensive player in the draft. We're going to work on defense. And he was coachable, bought in. He wanted to play. I convinced him if he got better defensively, he would be able to start from the very beginning or have a chance to start. Um, Alvin Gentry then hires you to join his staff in New Orleans with the Pelicans. What's it like coaching Anthony Davis? Uh, I mean, he was uh, – he's great. Like, just a really – versatile player can do a lot of things offensively and defensively uh, impacts the game at both ends, high level two way guy, but great kid. This is a great kid. All, I mean, most guys in the NBA, I'll say this, they, they want to be, they want to be coached. Uh, they want, they don't, they don't want to be embarrassed when they go on the court. They want any Avenue they can to succeed and win or not be embarrassed or perform well. So, uh, if you can give them that vehicle to be successful, they're going to listen to you. And I felt like all these guys kind of listened because they felt like I could help them. And Anthony was just another one of those guys. So it comes full circle as you're now back in the Celtics organization as the head coach of the main red clause. Uh, how do you get back there? And then what's it like coming back to typically the place that you started your rise? Yeah, no, it was uh, as good. I had opportunity to be like, if you look at all these head coaches in the NBA, Nick Nurse, Taylor Jenkins, um, a lot of them, Quinn Snyder, a lot of these guys started or got head coaching experience in the G League. So a lot of GMs I talked to said, if you want to be a head coach and you get head coaching experience. So although as associate head coach in New Orleans, having the opportunity to get head coaching experience in Maine was a good opportunity for me. Uh, you know, I'm close to a lot of the guys in the Celtics from, um, you know, Brad, Danny. So uh, they offered me the job to be the G League head coach. It's a good, great organization. We had a really good team. They gave us a lot of talent. And we were able to do well. But uh, to get head coaching experience is hard. I mean, there's only 30 NBA jobs and there's 28 G League jobs. So it's hard to do it. So when you get that opportunity, you got to take advantage of it because a lot of GMs now want to make sure you have that experience. Compare coaching in the G League as a head coach to assisting in the NBA. Uh, the G League is uh, – there's a lot of moving parts. 
your roster changes game to game. Like, you know, you might have a Celtic player play for you, or you might have one of your players go play for the Celtics, your roster, uh, another team, if you're might sign one of your players. So you might have uh, one starting five one day, another starting five another day, and then a different one the third day. And this is all within like a six day period. And then when you're preparing for another team, their team might change like hour before the game. Yeah. You always got to be like, you got to be flexible, teaches be flexible, teaches you to think on your feet. That's why I think a lot of the guys that have G League experience as head coaches are doing well as head coaches in the NBA because they've had to always think on their feet, be flexible, find different ways to win. You might have, you know, Taco Fall was a player for us. He's seven foot six. When we played with him, we were a totally different team than when he didn't play for us because he, you know, played 30% of the games. We played 30% of our games without him. Yeah. You've got future Hall of Famers, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry. They're quoted as saying that you're the reason for making them better players. What's that mean for you for a guy that may not have ever been a coach to have had effect on superstar players like that? Yeah, I mean, it means a lot. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, the one thing you learn when you work with these guys, if you believe in them and give them confidence, it's really good. And it's a good feeling to know that they believe in me as well. Like, you know, um, that, that, that I can help them. Like I, I talked to uh, one player recently, he says, as a, as one of the three most influential people in his life, you know, like to have those people say that to you ever in his life is, uh, or as a coach is big, you know, I mean, I'm this five, eight Jewish guy pretending like I can coach basketball and I've like influenced these guys and helped them throughout their careers. So it's a good feeling and good feeling to know that we can reciprocate it, that I believe in them and they believe in me. Do you think that you're, is there a little of that saying, fake it till you make it, or are you just this picture of persistence? Because you're rife with hard work. You, you mentioned there's a little bit of luck in there and there's a ton of persistence. Is it fake it till you make it or is it just work your balls off? I think it's work your balls off. Because you, 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 like one thing with players, you can't, if you fake it, they know it. Yeah. They know bullshit. Like, you know, you don't ever want to be wrong. Like Scalabrine told me early on, like, if you don't know the answer, don't make it up. Say, I'll figure it out. Because, like, uh, so you can't really fake it. You can't say, oh, you know, this could work. We Maybe we should try this. And you better you better come out with some confidence that this is there's, there's a good chance that this could be successful. And it might not. Like, there's games, like, the next day I go there, hey, this is my fault. It was a bad game plan. Like, yeah. you know, in, in 82 games, it's not going to – the coach isn't going to be perfect. He might, there might be 10 games where the game plan's not good. You know, you might think it's good. You put a lot of time in there and you try in the game and you realize, Hey, this isn't good. Like we tried something when I was in golden state against OKC and Kevin Durant and the guy crushed us. Yeah. Next day, I was like, that's a terrible idea. It's on me. <laughs> so this is this beauty in the honesty of being like, Oh, I fucked up. That's yeah. on me hard. And players like that because they're like, you know, it puts you in a human light. It's not like you're blaming players. Hey, this is your fault. This is your fault. No, my fault too, man. I mess up. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. It's a part of being human. Do you feel that your Jewishness has impacted your career at all? Uh, I mean, like my experiences in being a Jew helped me get 
to where I am. Like, you know, I went to this conference, Washington 13 back in the day, which is a conference for young Jewish leaders. And um, that's where I learned about Seeds of Peace. So then I go to Seeds of Peace, become a counselor because I heard about this Jewish um, conference and that's where I meet all these NBA guys. And then, and uh, from Seeds of Peace, you know, um, meeting those NBA guys got me into the NBA. So I've always been, had, and I was like, growing up, I was in youth group as in BBYO, as president of uh, Kentucky and Dana, Ohio. So some leadership skills <clears throat> have helped me, but being active in the Jewish community growing up and uh, throughout even my young adult life got me to where I am. So it's always been beneficial, I think. What's next for you? You're hoping to get on the Celtics bench. That's a big question. No, no. I mean, I, we'll see. I like my role. You never, I mean, like lucky to have jobs, especially during this time. I mean, in COVID. So I've been very fortunate. Uh, I like what I do. I like being a head coach in the G league. You learn a lot. Like I, I mean, you learn a ton. And uh, so I've been really lucky. We'll see what the future holds. We're excited, man. You're, you're truly a badass. You're an inspiration to anyone with a dream. What would you say to young Jews who maybe have a dream but are afraid of pursuing it in terms of going the more proven route. Yeah, I mean, I would say bet on yourself. Like, go do what you want, bet on yourself, believe in yourself, work hard, uh, but don't uh, don't just let it be a phrase of like working hard. You gotta really go out there. Like, if you're not working hard, someone else is, but bet on yourself. Like, you know, that's why people go to, that's why people take out lo loans when they go to college, because they're betting on themselves that they'll be able to pay it back. It's no different than uh, going out there and living on an aero bed or doing whatever, making $15,000 a year. You're betting on yourself that one day you're not going to have that lifestyle, that you'll be able to do what you want and make more money and live at better living conditions like cockroaches or squirrels. This episode of Badass Jew is brought to you by Aerobed. Aerobed, the finest air mattresses available for people living in poverty while being Jewish and trying to get to the next level in their lives. Aerobed, now available with and without squirrels. Aerobed, lay in us while you lay in your dreams. Aerobed. Darren, you are proof that a badass Jew exists within the soul, exists within the dreams. Thank you for having us today, man. And thank you for letting us be part of your lives. Thank you for being on our show. Brought to you by Arrowbed. <laughs> no, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I can't thank you guys enough. <laughs>